Jolie, your branding badass, and welcome to my very first episode of Branding Matters. My guest today is someone I've known my entire life. He's also one of the first people I told when I decided to do this podcast, so it's only natural that he would be my very first guest. His name is Scott Goodson, and he is my big brother. Not only that, but Scott is the founder of Strawberry Frog, the world's first movement marketing agency dedicated to cultural movement marketing. He's also the author of Globe and Mail bestselling book, Uprising, How to Build a Brand and Change the World by Sparking a Cultural Movement. When I told Scott I was doing this podcast, he was super supportive. And when I asked him if he would be one of my guests, he said, of course, it sounds like fun. I'd love to. So I asked him to send me his bio, which I was going to edit down slightly to use for my podcast. So I did that. And then I sent it back to him to review. Then a few days later, I get an email back from him saying, this is great. There's just a few notes. And then at the end of that, he made a little comment. He said, here are some questions that I think you should ask me. So I had a little chuckle because I thought it was funny that not only was he rewriting his bio, but now he was actually writing the questions that I was going to ask him on my podcast. So I basically just thanked him for the notes and thought to myself, okay, well, I know he means well because he's my big brother and he wants to make sure I succeed, but um, this is my podcast and these are going to be my questions. So Scott, hope you're okay with that. I appreciate everything that you do and I love your support and I'm so excited to have you be my first guest. So before we get into the questions, I'm going to quickly share your bio with everybody. As I said, Scott Goodson is the founder of Strawberry Frog. Originally from Montreal, Scott launched his career in Sweden in the 1990s. One of his very first clients was Bjorn Borg, who was launching a new fashion line at the time. Scott also devised purpose strategies for Scandinavian multinationals, working with some extraordinary leaders who wanted to drive positive change while radically growing their companies. Since then, Scott has worked with the world's most iconic brands, including Procter & Gamble, Emirates Airline, Google, Heineken, Jim Beam, Coca-Cola, Mercedes, Natura Brasil, and Mahindra, just to name a few. He's also the author of the Globe and Mail best-selling book, Uprising, How to Build a Brand and Change the World by Sparking a Cultural Movement. When he's not working, Scott lectures at Harvard Business School, Columbia, and Cambridge University, and sometimes he even lectures me. But that's okay, because that's what big brothers are for. So I couldn't be more excited to introduce to you my big brother, Scott Goodson. Bro, welcome to Branding Matters. I think the I think the intro was a bit long. Well, that I came from the source. So, um, well, there's a lot to be impressed about, and I'm very proud of you, obviously. Um, okay, so can you tell us how you got started in this business, or tell our our listeners? I know how you got started, but why don't you tell our listeners how you got started and why? Well, that's a big <laughs> question. Um, I guess. I grew up in the same house as you did, and we had parents that were very entrepreneurial and very supportive and good role models. My dad was very, had his own company, and you know, despite the challenge, everybody has challenges, but he he I think taught us all that you know you can succeed as a independent business person if you if you've got a good idea and if you focus and you stick to your guns and you know you you persevere. And I think he, that was something that we experienced. Um, And he had a good sense of humor. And I think he was in the sort of same space as this. I didn't, 
want to go into this business when I was younger. Actually, I kind of, uh, I didn't want to work in communications. Um, I, I think I wanted to maybe be a lawyer. Um, that was kind of my goal in university. Growing up in a household with my mom, with mom and dad, and uh, know what they were, what the challenges they faced in this business because it's a tough business. I think I was looking for, um, I don't know, doing something completely different. Did I you think, work with dad for a while? Yeah, yeah, I worked with him every summer from the age of I think when I was like thirteen. I would work for him, and then I'd go caddy. <laughs> that was my. It was my me time with dad was like, cause he was always playing golf at the office. So I yeah. quickly learned to spend time with him. I had to go to where he went, which was at the office. So I worked for him in the summers and then I would caddy for him at the golf course. And um, I think uh, I, you know, mom and dad, we used to have a lot of good family dinners uh, where they talked a lot about, about life and and about their lives and our family and their parents and but occasionally they talked about work and business and i think a lot of that kind of came into our heads through osmosis it just kind of sunk in and you know when i ended up in sweden um and i had to kind of make a success of myself um i put myself out there in in a you know in a role of a copywriter not really knowing what I was doing, except having had a lot of family dinners and mom and her first experience as a copywriter and dad. And I guess I just kind of, it all came together and I just put myself out there. And I think the early lesson is if you put yourself out there, opportunities kind of happen and it's what you do with those opportunities that make all the difference. And I just happened to, you know, lean in very much on my first opportunity in Sweden, which was, as you mentioned, this opportunity to work with Bjorn Borg and it kind of was a super fun experience. Uh, he's a super, very nice guy. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it and they paid really well. Mm -hmm. So I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. Before we continue, I, I, I know why, yeah. but I don't, I think a lot of people don't know why, what brought you to Sweden? Why? You I took a, I got on the wrong plane. <laughs> ended up in Nor I thought I was going to Switzerland. Come on, tell the real story. I was arrested by Interpol. <laughs> Do you want me now to I tell was, him? Come on. I You I have was, a very uh, good reason. Why does anybody move to a new city? It's either a job or someone I was paid in love. A lot of money. It was either a job or a love interest. Which was it no, for you? No, I, I met I met um I was traveling from I was in Asia for a while and I was on my way back to Canada and I stopped in Greece and um I actually was I met these two women. Uh, they were in their fifties, and uh, I was. And you were how old at the time? Twenty, my early twenties. Right. And they had just been released from prison, and I decided to. I was going to travel with them and write a book. So I traveled from Athens and went through a couple of the islands, and they were quite fascinating. They'd been in prison for one had been in prison, Maureen, for twenty-five years. Is this true? Husband. Yeah, true story. Wow. Okay, I didn't. And know the that. other was in prison fifteen years for bank robbery or assisted bank robbery. And um, I was like, wow, you know, I came from a pretty sheltered life in Canada. I mean, I played hockey. That was, that was about as violent as I got. Um, anyway, they introduced me to this Swedish girl who, you know, they gathered up from one of the bars. They were trying to bring everybody out to one bar and negotiate cheap alcohol prices. So they pulled Karin and her, Karin is my wife. And at the time was a innocent young woman from Sweden <laughs> and brought her out of the bar and Maureen introduced us and uh, it was love at first sight and I ended up following her to Sweden. 
Awesome. And we love yep. Karin. <laughs> we love Karin. And you've been together now how many years? Going on three. <laughs> three plus, three, years. three plus 18? No, we've been together for a few years. No, it's, we have two children that are teenagers, one going yeah. to Queens University in their business, business school. So it's been a few years. Yeah. Well, that's we met great. back in the in the 80s. Awesome. Okay, so back to business. So you're in Sweden, and you're working and you have Bjornborg as a client. And then you're in advertising. And then in 1999, what happened? Well, you kind of so in Sweden, I mean, I think the, you know, if you're a student, you're listening to this, I think a key point is, you know, the people you work in the early part of your career, define who you become. So there's a kind of an old adage, if you roll around the grass and you roll in shit, it sticks to you. So if you have a really bad company you work for, it doesn't help your career long-term. If you work with Bjorn Borg, like I did, it helps your career. So when I did Bjorn Borg, next thing I know, I got a phone call from another agency that had the global Ericsson mobile phone account, which at the time was 60% of the world's mobile phones. It was bigger than, than Apple. Uh, at the time. And they asked me to, they wanted to hire me to do the global advertising for Ericsson mobile phones. So I moved from one agency to the other. And then I took a job at this company called Wellender and eventually became co-owner of that company. It's another long story, but I became co-owner. So I stayed in Sweden for a decade. And then when dad got sick and I'd been away for quite a while, you know, I was in Asia for two and a half years and Europe and Sweden for 10. Uh, and dad got cancer, I sold the company in Sweden and moved back to Canada. And then of course dad died, which was of course a tragic. He was a really uh, wonderful person. And uh, then we decided, Karin and I moved back to Sweden, uh, sorry, to Europe. And we lived in, and we decided this time we would start a new company. She also had worked in Sweden at an agency called 1687. She was a rock star copywriter. She worked on Nike and she worked on, um, Olands, which was the big Swedish department store chain. And she won a lot of awards for that. And uh, so we decided we would start our own company together. And we moved from Canada to Amsterdam. And we had literally two backpacks and a dog and uh, started out of uh, this tiny little space in Amsterdam on, K on Kaisersgracht in this little part and little place. And um, an old client of mine, which was Swatch, um, was launching a car that the company owner, his name was Hayek, he's now since deceased. He was looking for uh, a company that had great strategic creative credentials and he knew the work that I was doing in Sweden. So he asked me to come to Switzerland. I met the leadership and ended up, they ended up hiring us to launch the smart car and we were in business, you know, we got um, our first revenue and um, started hiring people. And uh, I think we had a dozen or so folks and we worked out of one room, you know, we slept in the same room, we ate in the same room, we worked in the same room, <laughs> everybody put the garbage out, everybody did everything together. Um, and Zorro, our dog was there, he was had to be walked every day. And of course, everybody started feeding him. So we actually started gaining a lot of weight. Um, anyway, that, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that, that so kind of was the start of Strawberry Frog in Amsterdam. Okay. So yeah. good, good. In 1999. Stop, 1999. Right. Uh, so Strawberry Frog, like, how'd you come up with the name? Um, I was smoking a joint with your mother <laughs> in Amsterdam. <laughs> with my uh, mother, probably. 
Yeah. Actually, one day I remember we were traveling. I was traveling on a business trip and we had we had this big um, ship in Amsterdam, like a freight ship that we would rent and you could fill it with a band and, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 people and then, you know, cruise the canals of Amsterdam. So we would do that every once in a while with the with the company. And by this time, you know, we were about 70 people or something, I don't know, 60 people. And I went on a business trip and I came back and everyone was like, oh, your mom, and mom was visiting. Right. And they were like, oh, your mother's so cool. She was smoking dope with us on the boat. It was so, she's so awesome. And I was like, oh my God, really? Uh, that's so, funny. Um, well, I remember no, going, na- sorry, I was going to yeah, say, I just go remember ahead. going to the, mom and I went to the Rolling Stones concert. I don't know if you know that, just before I took off to go traveling. And uh, same thing, we're at the Rolling Stones concert and they're passing a joint along and she's like, grabs it and takes some of it. Yeah. So well, that Okay, so well, she start- grew up in the '60s in Montreal, where you know Pierre Trudeau. Her well, she didn't grow up in father. the '60s. We were born. I was born in the '60s. No, she didn't right. grow up in the '60s, but she was. You know, she was in yeah, her. Yeah, she was in her, her prime. In her twenties and thirties, in the '60s, and in and you know Pierre Trudeau ran on legalizing marijuana, so it wasn't it wasn't considered. I mean, it was a pretty common um, experience for people in Canada in the 1960s to smoke marijuana, especially parents. It wasn't like it was in the United States or in other countries. Yeah. And, and it was legal in Amsterdam, wasn't it, then, when she was there? Well, I'm talking about in yeah. Canada, but in yeah, yeah, when I was in Amsterdam, it, was, it wasn't it was legal, but it was decriminalized, which meant you could buy it and, right. and use it anywhere. Not that I did that often, but mom <laughs> certainly did. Yeah. Um, but getting back to your questions. <laughs> yeah, strawberry so frog. strawberry frog. Yeah. So that came from, um, from my head. The idea was to come up with a memorable name that represented an agile dynamic company that was the antithesis of these big, huge corporate dinosaurs, the big global uh, advertising networks that existed. And Mm -hmm. what I had learned in Sweden was in the Swedes, and to some extent, the Germans and the Dutch um, are not big into hiring these huge corporate ad agencies just because they feel that a small group of talented people uh, will do a better job than a big, huge bureaucratic dinosaur. So, you know, when I was in Sweden, I worked with a lot of big multinationals there. They didn't rely on these big networks. They they preferred a small team. In fact, the agency that hired me to do Ericsson, which at the time was the global phone company, they didn't want a big network. And I think if you look at Europe, there's like a, there's a delineation line really at the, the in the Ruhr Valley. You know, it's kind of that sort of Southern part of uh, just near Switzerland, near Basel, like anything North is matrix-driven organizations where CEOs of companies don't dictate to their country managers which ad agencies they should have. Whereas everything south, including the UK, have like a Napoleonic model where the CEO tells everybody, you need to work with the global network. You need to work. And of course, the United States does the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and Canada. What do you think that is? Why do you think there's that divide? It's culture, right? cultural. Yeah. I think uh, Scandinavian leaders work in matrix organizations where they delegate decision-making to their company CEOs and French, British, Spanish, Italian, American companies, for the most part, Napoleonic, they follow the leader. The leader Mm -hmm. dictates go left and everyone goes left. The CEO Mm -hmm. of the company hires the same agency and doesn't diverge. So I think it's really, that's where it comes from. And any German companies that do work with global networks do it because at some point they had a relationship with an American group. So when Daimler merged with Chrysler, one of the uh, effects of that relationship was before that Daimler, which owned Mercedes, never worked with a network. They had their own agency in every market, just like BMW does and Audi and, and VW. But when they merged with, with Chrysler, they kind of picked up the bad American habit of having a global network. So that's why today Mercedes still works for to a large extent with Omnicom. 
mm-hmm. that comes from the legacy of that experience. Anyway, so I wanted to start a company in Amsterdam with Car and my wife and a bunch of ragtag British, German, Scandinavian, Italian, uh, Canadian, American people, Japanese. We actually had some Japanese too. And we wanted to compete with the big, the big Dinosaurs. global networks, but do it faster, cheaper, and better, right? more innovatively. So Strawberry Frog was kind of this small frog actually existing in the Amazon. And we thought it was a great namesake for that type of company. Mm-hmm. It is a great name. Very memorable. And it's poisonous. So if you lick it, you will die. So it's <laughs> okay. highly effective. All right. So, okay. So let's talk about 1999 and specifically you mentioned Mercedes. So that was the client you created, um, you launched, you launched their smart car and you created a great social movement and you called it reduce the max. So how did you get a traditional brand like Mercedes to get on board to this new way of advertising that you called movement marketing? The video that I remember when you did it, actually, I remember when you sent it to me and it was so great. And it was against, it was a, what you're was You're thinking, the, you're, you're thinking about when we launched it in the United States. Yeah. And what was dumb? That was against a different, dumb, different, that's right. that was a different program. That was, oh, was it? years oh, later. Oh, okay. yeah, that was I thought like it was 1999. No, no, that was like 2000 and I don't know 15 or something this this was 99 we actually did oh, okay. the launch of the first time when smart car was just being launched so the question you asked is a good one which is how could Mercedes you know first of all hire us and why would they want to do something like a movement instead of a traditional, a traditional ad right, campaign right. Mm-hmm. and the reason is because they didn't control the marketing it was a collaboration the company was called MCC it was micro car company and 50% owned by Mercedes and 50% owned by Swatch. And they divided up the responsibilities so that Mercedes did the design and manufacture of the vehicles and sales. And Mercedes and Swatch did the design of the brand, the marketing, and they also had the responsibility for design of everything. So including how the showrooms would be developed. So we were hired by the Swatch guys and our client, who was the CMO, actually had come before from Esprit, which was a German company, fashion brand. So no car experience. And they wanted that. They wanted a disruptive brand hmm. that did things completely differently. So they hired a guy who was the head of marketing from Esprit, made that person the marketing head. And he was very open-minded, as fashion people are, to trying new things. So when we said, hey, you know, we want to try to make the world a better place with this car because the last thing the world needs is another small two-seater. What it needs is a big idea to help solve some of the big issues that exist in the world. And that actually followed on the vision of Mr. Hyatt, who owns Swatch. He had a vision that Swatch should be, sorry, smart car should be a mobility concept to help solve some of the bigger issues, <coughs> excuse me, in the world. <coughs> excuse me. I have a frog frog myself. Anyway, <laughs> I, um, so that's how we got to that innovative oh, idea okay. from Swatch. Yeah. And so the against dumb, does that have any correlation with that one then? I mean, you said it was so many years further. Was that because yeah, then so, it came to Canada or the US? Yes. Yeah, so when it came to the United States, they of course decided to launch it with a very different campaign. They worked with, I believe it was Omnicom, which is one of the big networks, and they launched it as a cool two-seater car. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do the same work that was done in Europe, which is very normal. Like you always have, you know, countries like to do their own thing. So US, you know, we we, we launched Smart Car. The idea was more or less the same across Europe, and that was the core market. And then eventually it was launched in uh, US and Canada. And when it was launched in US and Canada, it was launched in a traditional ad campaign. 
like you typically see a car. Like here's a new smart car, <laughs> two seater. Yeah. All the features. And it, and it flopped because yeah. most Americans were like, why would I buy a small car? Like I, they're dangerous and I want a big SUV, big honking SUV. So <laughs> and Hummers you know, were really popular at the time too, right? It Hummers was like were really huge, popular. Yeah. Car, big cars, gas yeah. prices were small, low. So, yeah. you know, in Europe is different. They care about the environment. They have high prices for gas. So a two seater, you can do something cool with it. In the United States, it's a death movie, you know, it's like, I'm not going to drive that car. So the biggest challenge, anyway, so they launched in the US, it was a complete failure. And they tried to redo it three or four times. It flopped every time. So they hired us to, to try to fix it. They were going to close it down. So we did an analysis that said the biggest issue Americans had with the car was that they didn't have a, they didn't understand what role it played in society. Why should I drive a car? And when you buy a car, the car bad says something about you. It's like, what is my philosophy? So we, we said that in the United States, there were a lot of people that had McMansions and huge SUVs and everything, you know, a 10, 12 slots for toast and yeah. everything's huge. Yeah. And we said, there's a backlash. There are people out there that think that's really dumb. Like, why do you need all that stuff? Those, there are a lot of people out there that think overconsumption, mass overconsumption is stupid. So we said, those are the people that should drive smart car. Because mm -hmm. if you're against dumb mass consumption, you are smart. So we launched it as the antithesis of the opposite of That's what these I meant. huge antithesis. consumers. And it started the first month, we had 214% increase in sales. So it's just about making the brand relevant to the right audience. So that was that was super successful, and we we worked on that for a while, and uh, and then of course as it started succeeding, Mercedes changed their dec decision again. They changed their whole design, their whole leadership team, and then they went back to the big agency, wow. and they went back to their campaign. Wow! And I, I don't know where Smart is today. I don't think yeah. it's it's very successful. I but love that. That's, that's the difference of the campaigns. Yeah. Yeah, that was I loved it. It was brilliant, and that little video is so good. So before we talk about movement marketing, I do have a question for you. So so you because you said you went from Sweden and then Canada and then Amsterdam. So what what brought you to New York? How did you end up in New York? So when we built Strawberry Frog, we it actually grew very quickly. We started working with a number of big global brands. And by then we had opened offices in Brazil. Um, we had offices in Mumbai, Singapore. Amsterdam, Dubai, and Karn uh, and I just felt that we wanted a big, hairy, audacious goal. So we thought we'd move the Dutch headquarters to New York. So we moved to New York and moved to the offices there and didn't look back. We thought that would be cool. That'd be a great place to run a global business. And we set up, you know, office in New York on Madison Avenue, 26 in Madison, right on the park, on Madison Square Park. Car and and didn't my wife. you do that when Madison Avenue sort of was big back in the 60s and Mad Men days and then everyone left Madison Avenue when other places and weren't you one of the first agencies to go back to Madison? Yeah, yeah, we right? were one of the first. I think because we weren't American or from New York, we were like enthralled with Madison Avenue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we moved in on Madison, the rent was super cheap. We had the penthouse on 26 Madison yeah. right at the park, Madison Square Park. And those days it was like Needle Park. I mean, it was, you know, noontime and Needle Park was like hundreds of people, junkies, you know, yeah. taking crack. And <laughs> it was pretty, God. pretty horrible. Today, if you go there, well, it's, now it's probably much worse. But yeah. two years ago, before the pandemic, it was probably the highest real estate in the U.S. Uh, to be there. In fact, when we, we moved to the Empire State Building, I think three and a half years ago or something, when we left, they had like more than doubled our, our rent. So the place when, you know, became is super red hot for tech companies. 
Um, but anyway, we moved to New York. You know, we went to Amsterdam with a dog and two backpacks. We left Amsterdam with a whole <laughs> container of stuff, a dog and uh, two kids. Two kids. <laughs> and so we rolled up in New York and we said, let's give it a shot and see how it goes. And it, it actually went really well. We were very fortunate to find some incredibly talented people and some incredibly gracious and intelligent clients. Um, and we're able to build a business relatively quickly uh, in the US. Not, we didn't lean on our clients from uh, Europe. I mean, we, we did uh, get a, quite a lot of business from, from Heineken, which was a global client of ours. In fact, the US leadership wanted to reposition all the, the brands that Heineken owns. So that was our big first project. We, we worked on the strategies for Heineken, Heineken mm-hmm. Light, Amstel Light, and a bunch of other. They have several Mexican brands. They, they have um, a bunch of other brands. And we actually did that for a couple of years. A terrific team. We were also doing the James Bond work, all the James Bond advertising and the brand advertising. And the, we launched Champions League, which is the biggest sporting event in the world. We did a whole Heineken sponsorship for Champions League out in New York. And that just just allowed us to hire some really talented people. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in a talent business like, like we are, you know, we were able to grow the business quite quickly as a result of the talent that we had in the company. That's amazing. Very impressive. Okay, so let's talk about um, your book, Uprising. So I'm going to read a quote from the book where it starts out, find out what moves people to action, then create a way to support and enhance that movement with your product, service, or craft. So today we have so many movements, right? The most popular one being the Black Lives Matter. How does a brand authentically connect to the lives and passions of people without coming across as being inauthentic or greenwashing because it seems like when there's something going on in the world every brand wants to jump on it and say why they care about it but is it really authentic so you were really one of the first or you coined the phrase movement marketing did you not i did yeah so can you elaborate on what Um, was impetus for the book and tell us a little bit about it so yeah so the idea of movement marketing kind of came to me so going back to my swedish days sweden was a place where advertising uh developed relatively quickly in the 1980s it wasn't like the us or canada or or other parts of western europe it was a country that had didn't have much advertising in fact there was no tv advertising there was no radio advertising there was print advertising and there was billboards so most people that worked in the communications business worked in uh, information. So they worked in like PR and information inside companies because they didn't believe, you know, Sweden being a social democracy, they felt that advertising was manipulating consumers to buy shit that they don't need. So they didn't believe in advertising. So they didn't want it investing there in their airways. So it was illegal. And It was and illegal? Illegal, yeah. Oh, so, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So when I moved to Sweden, they started to legalize it. Not, not directly when I moved. I still, billboards and print was pretty much the main channel. Mm-hmm. And with the internet, of course, it's very difficult to limit things. So they started to legalize it. What happened was Swedish consumers really demanded more of their companies. They wanted less packaging. They wanted more women on boards. They wanted more social progress. So they expected these companies that deliver their products to not only abide by that, expectation, but deliver better types of products and services. So that's where the idea of purpose strategies came up. So we developed purpose strategies for these clients, basically trying to figure out their why. Why do we exist? It wasn't just positioning, which is a very traditional way of thinking about brand building. You know, what is the position of a brand? It was, how do you make that, how do you come up with that position? And how do you come up with a even more relevant, more meaningful idea, which is a purpose? 
and make both of those distinctive enough for the brand to be seen as unique and also solving some bigger issues in society as well as your consumer needs. So we developed purpose strategies. And as we started launching those purpose strategies outside of Sweden and Scandinavia and the Nordics and Germany, we realized that purpose was really too theoretical for like Poland or Czech Republic or Greece or Thailand, or Australia, or Brazil, or even the United States. Now I'm talking about late 80s, early 90s. So that's where, you know, I started realizing that a way to activate purpose was through a movement, just like you would see a social movement. Mm -hmm. You take a purpose, which is like a strategy, and you think of it as a movement, and it becomes easier for people to get, easier to join, simpler to kind of align with than a purpose, which sometimes can be a little too theoretical. Companies aren't universities. They're trying to sell stuff. So they have to find ways of activating that more meaningful why, that purpose in a way that people can relate to both consumers and employees. Mm -hmm. So we started to launch purposes, like I said, with Swatch, sorry, with Smart. And then we worked with Ikea and then we worked with Heineken and we worked with Emirates and we worked with a lot of these big global clients, Pampers from P&G, and we all worked to develop a purpose that was activated through a movement. So back in 2000 and 2008, 2009, I was spending about a week a month in Dubai because we had the Global Emirates account. We were launching a movement for Emirates Airline, which was a fledgling airline based in Dubai, in the UAE. And I would fly from New York and Emirates had a tremendous uh, investment in Airbus A380s. They were largest buyer of Airbus A380s on the planet. They had $70 billion worth of aircraft on order and they were spent, they wanted to, to take over the global aviation space. Mm-hmm. And they hired Strawberry Frog to launch a movement first inside the company and then externally to, you know, So was that why the they planet. hired you? Like to launch a movement? Was that their yep. mission or they didn't know and you sort of guided them? No, I, they wanted a movement. Okay. They part of part of the job that one has when you're doing what we do is to diagnose the patient in the right way. And mm-hmm. Emirates, the time Sir Maurice Flanagan, who was the founder of Emirates, he was a wonderful gentleman who was the chairman as well as the CEO, Tim Clark, the leadership of the organization, Sheikh Ahmed, who was the chairman as well, uh, the main chairman. They were looking for and also the you know others. Boutros, Boutros, who was the head of marketing, they were looking for a solution to some of their problems. They weren't looking for a brand campaign. In fact, I took the time to ask each of them, what are you, what problem are you trying to solve? Because mm-hmm. every, every, you know, it was a pitch. So it was Strawberry Frog against Gray and Strawberry Frog against BBDO and Strawberry Frog against, I don't know, it was JWT and it was, you name it, you know, all the big global agencies and Strawberry Frog. And, you know, I just asked them, because we all had the opportunity to ask questions. I asked, what problem are you trying to solve? And I, I remember the chairman, Maurice Flanagan, said to me, you know, we don't need a brand campaign. What we need is somebody to come in and help us figure out how we're going to hire all these people from all over the world and help them develop a culture between them so that they want to work on Emirates and they can work together. And it kind of struck me as a wonderful goal for this movement that we could galvanize all these people and, you know, they were growing as fast as Google. They were, they had hired every year, seven and a half thousand new pilots. Plus, you know, each, you know, every, every Airbus had two pilots plus 35 crew members. So they were hiring thousands and thousands of people from Japan and Australia and Canada and Brazil and Jamaica. I was on a flight once my captain was 
from Jamaica. His co-captain was from the Czech Republic. The purser was from <laughs> Russia. You know, it was literally yeah. from all over the planet. Yeah. And, you know, and Dubai is a country with a relatively short history. They don't have a culture that is particularly recognized outside of Dubai. So there were some challenges. If you think about people going to work for Air Canada or Delta Airlines or British Airways, there's a really clear culture. You know what the airline stands for. You know what your expectations, the expectations are. Emirates didn't have that. So we realized that by launching a cultural movement, we could solve that issue inside the company. And so when we presented that idea of movement, they bought, they hired us and we launched a movement to make the world a smaller place by overcoming obstacles and misconceptions between people. And that was the movement. So that when they hired all these people, they could rally around an idea inside the organization that brought them all together. And then we took that idea and took it outside and said, when you are a traveler and you meet other people, you grow and you become a better person. And so the idea started inside was an 18 month internal cultural program. And then we went externally and launched it in 180 markets. I think the most proud moment was when I saw the whole campaign uh, in Korean. <laughs> you know, You're kidding. In, wow. Yeah, it was in, in every country on the planet. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, they spent a gazillion dollars launching in every country on the planet and it was wonderful. And I felt that we were doing, you know, we have a purpose at Strawberry Frog, which is to use creativity for good. And I really felt that that was a way for a, a way to demonstrate we were doing good by bringing people together. I mean, looking at the world today, you wouldn't see it, but but I think uh, back then we were very idealistic. And um, I can't remember what that's, your question was. Well, that's okay. We're talking about uh, how they you got them to do them and the movement marketing. Oh, yeah. You made me think yeah, of something you it. talked about bringing the world together. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody wants to belong and have that sense of community. And you said right yeah. now, today, there is so much divide between right and left. And so people want that sense of belonging. Let's talk about COVID. You mentioned that earlier. I think this is a good segue. I mean, the world, everything has changed now in so many ways. Um, and COVID has just, I think, been a huge part of that for many reasons. So let's talk about how COVID has affected branding specifically and movement marketing. How has it affected the way you're working with your clients? Well, I think, you know, ask yourself, like, what are you afraid of? How do you feel with your kids? Um, how do you feel with your friends? Uh, how do you feel about your job? I think most people feel very insecure, very scared, of course, scared, yeah. fearful, um, unsure. Um, and so if you put yourself in a position of a company CEO, whose job it is to build the company. The first challenge you have is you've got a workforce who are emotionally distressed. Probably you have more people inside the company with psychological issues than you had previously. You probably have people who are have physical issues, not just COVID. I mean, there are people probably that have COVID and there's issues around that, but there are people that may have not tended to other medical issues because they haven't been able to do it because of COVID. Or they're too or, scared to even go to near a hospital. So they're not dealing just, with it. Exactly. Yeah. Or other issues. So there's physical, emotional well-being issues. And then, of course, financial uh, well-being. People have a great burden financially. So if you're the CEO of a company, you're faced with an un, a, a volatile and scared workforce. So you have to think about your people. If you're a company that prides itself on the quality of your service or the product, you can't deliver that stuff if your employees or your associates don't feel good about themselves. 
So a lot of CEOs really need to figure out how you're going to transform their company by first dealing and galvanizing the internal organizations. And mm -hmm. we've spent a lot of time right now working with some extraordinary companies to help them focus on that, using a movement to change the culture or habits of the employees. Secondly, thinking about going outside the organization, people feel the same way externally. The last thing they want is for a company to come and tell them, buy a new car. It's shiny and great. They don't feel like they need a fancy new car or they may not feel like they need a new purse or they need a new, I don't know, this or that. So consumption is changing. I think what people are looking for is understanding help and they're going to reward companies that are doing more than just selling hawking stuff. If you're an organization that can help hardworking families, if you're an organization that can help moms with kids or an organization that helps communities, you'll end up faring much better in the future. I think purpose strategies and purpose brands are going to thrive in the post-COVID world. They're going to, you know, companies that have a purpose and companies that have a movement are going to be like a ship with a rudder. They're going to have a strong wind blowing and they're going to fly across the seas, across waves. And the organizations without a purpose and without a movement are going to be like a sailing ship without a rudder. They're going to be flipping and flopping and the wind's going to blow one direction. And they're going to go one yeah. way and they're going to go another way and they're not going to get very far. So I think it's, it's, it's really a world that is going to need leadership and leadership isn't just selling stuff. Leadership is relevant ideas that help people feel secure, help them through this emotional, financial, physical stress that they're feeling. And then on top of that, you have other issues like the environment, sustainability, you know, these, these are big issues that have to be addressed. So I think that's what big companies understand. And I think, you know, the successful ones, the leaders out there, the ones that are going to thrive and succeed are the ones that are going to be able to deliver that in a big way. Yeah, absolutely. And, be rewarded. There's, and there's more demand for that now than ever before, where people are basing their decisions, A, because like you said, money is harder to come by for a lot of people. So when they do make that decision, they want to know that it's going to a purpose that aligns with their values, right? It's about connecting with people on a level that's much deeper than just the shiny car, because what, who cares what the car looks like? It's what's the purpose behind it. And if it aligns yeah. with what I, my values, then that's how it's going to connect people. If you need a new car, yeah, you're going to want a new car. And some people will always get the cheapest car and some people always get the most expensive car. Most people, I think, you know, they look at a couple different companies and companies that are maybe, maybe a little more relevant to them mm -hmm. because they're helping in some way. You know, maybe they're they're more active in the local community. Um, maybe they're hiring more people or whatever. I mean, if whatever your values are, if you if that organ that other organization is aligned, you'll feel like you you respect them and you'll reward them for it. I think anytime you see that, anytime companies and we saw this coming out of two thousand and eight. I mean, you know, we we survived the financial meltdown in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and the same thing happened coming out of two thousand ten. Everybody talked about purpose. Every brand was about purpose. Every brand was trying to drive positive change in the world mm -hmm. because, you know, it was a, Obama became president. There was a like a huge awakening of social engagement, volunteerism. People wanted to help out and brands that represented those values just took off. And I think you're going to see the same thing in 2021 and 22. And so I think, you know, what we've been talking about is going to the kind of stuff of boardrooms over the next while. My biggest challenge to the leaders out there is that they... They don't just come up with purpose, like a toothless purpose. They come up with something really genuinely helpful and differentiated and, and is able to use that to galvanize organizations, their employees, as well as, as their potential consumer and consumers. And do you think that's going to continue 5, 10, 15 years from now? I mean, do you think it's just 
the cause of azure as they say cause azure or do you think this has really changed the way branding and businesses are gonna go to market i think the number of problems are only growing yeah the sense of anxiety whether it's real or it's just created because of the increase of technology and everybody's mm -hmm. hooked up all the time and every bit of information comes out everybody seems to be living from uh, every year seems to be getting more and more anxious. I think as long as there's anxieties and fear, people will be searching for security, stability. And the role of, I think, brands is to provide that by helping people solve their problems in those three areas, physical, emotional, and, and financial well-being. And, 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 and also in a way that helps the community thrive. I think if you can do that in a unique and relevant and meaningful way, and also the environment, of course, that's another, I mean, I, that's clear I didn't raise it, but, you know, companies need to keep that in mind. It's a big issue that yeah. we have to think about. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's going to be the big focus of organizations moving forward. People moving forward. want to know what brands stand for. Why right. are they there? We don't need another car brand. We don't need another financial institution. We don't need another cosmetic health and body <laughs> bath company. Like, Honestly, it, it, these companies will come and go. It doesn't yeah. matter. What are they doing to move the world forward? Yeah, I love that. Okay, so having run a firm dedicated to making meaningful movements to activate brand purpose, what would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned? That there are companies out there that deserve a movement and there are some that don't. And the wise man or What do you mean that don't? Can you elaborate on that? Well, that don't deserve Well, because the leadership, they just don't get it or they don't want it and you're wasting your time to try to convince them to do it. You know, it's like, it's better to go in. And I've come to a point where, you know, if a company doesn't want a purpose, they don't want to be doing that kind of marketing. We're not. Would you turn them down? And say, yeah. And say we're not we working turn down with a you? lot of, yeah, we do that a yeah. lot of times. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you want to work with organizations that, I mean, clearly we are, we have an extraordinary team that can do brilliant strategy and strategies to help galvanize employees, strategies to help connect deeply with consumers, finding, you know, the white space for brand. Mm -hmm. So I think what movement does, it just helps us understand culture and insights that are more relevant than traditional advertising insights, which tend to be around consumption uses. And that there's always going to be clients out there. We, uh, we just actually were asked by a very large consumer brand that does, you know, the very traditional type of advertising, you know, I call it bite and chew. It's kind of like it's two times thinner and five times brighter. And, you know, it's like a real functional yeah. based benefit. Those type of campaigns, that's just not our bag. You know, if you're a brand yeah. and you do that kind of stuff, don't come to us because we won't, we, we can't do that stuff. There are really, really great companies that do that kind of work. Yeah. We're that's just not, not one of those companies. So would yeah. you say the greatest lesson is you've learned who your customers are that you want to work with and those that you don't? I mean, I'm I just kind of summarizing, but... No, I, I wouldn't say it's the greatest lesson. I would say it's a lesson. What's I your think, greatest? I think the greatest lesson is to have a really clear idea of what you want to do in the world and hire the best people. And mm -hmm. the best people are talented people. They're also kind and generous and thoughtful and, you know, no, no jerks, no <laughs> selfish people, genuinely good people who are super talented and who really care. Um, so let me ask you a question. Would you hire someone who is super talented at like the number one, but was a bit of a jerk or if, if they didn't no. check those boxes, you wouldn't No. Wow. Impressive. We had last summer before, not last summer, sorry. Uh, last summer before last summer, 
Yeah. Uh, we had our, you know, we have this tadpole internship and we had over 740 applicants. Yeah. For that's that, a great for like program that five space five spaces. So, you know, we're very we're in a very fortunate position that we can that's internships, but there are a lot of people out there, especially now, you know, the marketing creative industries had a 25, 30% layoffs this year. I mean, there's so many people out of work. Yeah. So there's a lot of talented individuals. So it's an opportunity to identify good people. And I think there are a lot of people out there that have worked at other types of firms and they kind of have come to realization they don't need that kind of stuff anymore. They'd rather work at a place that suits their personality. So it's actually been easy to find really talented people. Um, that are nice. And <laughs> that are really nice, yeah. you know, that are frogs. I mean, yeah. frogs are nice, but they're, they're very, very talented and they, they do magical things. You know, they are highly professional and I'm, Karen and I are very fortunate that we have such an extraordinary group of people mm -hmm. uh, working with us. They're caring, super talented. They go the extra mile. They're innovative. They're fresh thinkers. And they love to have fun, which is yeah. makes it all worth it. I agree. It's all about having fun. Okay. So speaking of that, we're going to have some fun now. <laughs> it's been very right. informative, Scott. I mean, you and I, it's rare that we ever sit down and talk business. It's usually about you sort of telling me what to do or something. So um, we're going to have a little fun. Before we go there, I want people to learn a little bit about Scotty, as your friends like to call you, not the businessman, but the person behind the personality. So Marcel Proust, who's considered to be one of the most influential authors of the 20th century, he popularized this questionnaire, which became known as the Proust questionnaire. Have you heard of it? I know Marcel Proust, yes. No, I meant but I don't know. Well, I don't know the questionnaire. Yeah, no. the questionnaire. So he believed that on answering these questions, an, indiv an individual reveals his or her true nature. And okay. a lot of famous interviewers have, have used his questionnaire, namely James Lipton from the, he's the host from the Inside the Actor Studio, right? Which was a okay. So there's 35 questions in total, but because we're don't have a lot of time, I just picked out five to ask you. Okay, you ready? Is it multiple choice or do I have to go through long <laughs> answers? You just be yourself. Okay, let the Scott CEO, founder of Strawberry okay. Farm go and let the Scott. Yeah. Okay, so first question, what's your idea of perfect happiness? Perfect happiness is sitting on an island in far out in Long Island, looking out at Long Island Sound with deer and wild turkeys just walking all over the place and just enjoying a really delicious cup of tea or a, or a beer or a glass of wine and just uh, hanging with my family, my wife, and just chilling. That's happiness. That sounds great. Good answer. Love it. That was the right answer, by the way. Okay. What do that's you answer A. In a that's answer A, exactly. <laughs> Uh, what do you appreciate the most in your family? In my immediate family? Yeah. <clears throat> or whoever. What do you appreciate the um, most in your family? I, I appreciate their, uh, their passion and their spirit uh, and their individualism. Everybody's really different. And I mean, we have a common interest, of course, and a common bond, but each of us are unique. And I, and I think it's a it, it's a really dynamic, a really great dynamic that you can bring four individuals together that have really different interests. My younger son is super into soccer, and my other son is like a Renaissance kid. He loves drama and theater, and he's in business school, and he plays guitar, and he's you know. And then my wife has she's like a karate woman. <laughs> she's black like, belt, mind you. 
Double black belt. Double black and, belt. Uh, and she makes cookies and she, I mean, she's got all these really, you know, and she's in a finance supremo. Um, and then me, I'm kind of, you know, the least interesting of all. Wow. Uh, and they accept me in the group. So that's, that's good. So you appreciate their differences. So what about your friends? What do you appreciate the most in your friends and collectively? I mean, not uh, pointing. I think the, they're all really interesting conversationalists. Um, I think they, they can talk about philosophy, about contemporary social issues, politics. They can talk about recent books, anything i mean it's any conversation is never dull it's never, never you would never be at a table when pick up people would pick up phones the conversation is so thick and interesting that it just is always fascinating and i always learn something from my time with my friends mm-hmm. that's great okay what is your greatest fear my greatest fear um I guess that an asteroid will hit the earth in the tomorrow. And now, I don't really have a fear, to be honest. I'm quite fearless. Well, you're a little bit of a um, hypochondriac, wouldn't you say, if you're honest? No. No? No. Oh. Not really. Okay. Um, I, I, mean, I, don't, I think wearing rubber gloves all the time is quite normal. I don't know what you're talking about. And wearing my hazmat suit to work. No. I mean, that's, um, it's a nice hazmat suit. Do you but, have a fear of um, death? No. I'm not afraid of anything. Uh, I think, you know, you, you this is, since this is a Proust test, I'll use a, another philosopher, uh, Montaigne, French philosopher, who said, my life was a complete disaster. Most of it never happened. I think that's true. You know, humans always catastrophize and always go to the worst possible scenario. I keep reminding mm-hmm. my son, don't get so worked up. It's I not know. a big deal. I, and I, I just try to practice that myself and not get too worried about anything, actually. Um, I think everything can be, within reason, can be solved. Uh, and if it can't, I mean, there's nothing to worry about. It is what it is. So do I guess in a sense, com- I'm a little fatalistic. Do you think that comes with age? Like, do you think you're you're becoming more fearless as you've gotten older, you know, less fears versus 10, 20 years ago? Like yeah, I think yeah. you definitely, I mean, I remember back in 2008, 2009, we were like, I don't know, a hundred and some odd people. I had a, we had this big office in Madison Avenue, which was costing us a fortune, you know, million and a half dollars or 1.6 million a year in rent. And I had a 10 year lease and then the economy hit the brakes. And I was yeah. like, I could literally see, I was standing on a cliff and the drop was, you know, yeah. 500 miles down. And I was like, this company is going to fall off the cliff yeah. and I'm going to owe 10 years at 10, 1.6. I'm screwed. Yeah. And you know what? We had the best year that year. Hmm. Ended up being a great year financially. Company did really well. It didn't come to pass. So I, I you know. Which is I, usually what I, happens with fear, right? It usually doesn't come to I pass. Said. Yeah. That's what I said when I said that my life yeah. was a complete disaster. Yeah. Most of it never happened. It's, yeah. It doesn't happen. So yeah. I'm not, I don't feel fear, to be honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. So, hmm. you know, I mean, there are a couple of things that I always check, check, double check, just because I had made a mistake once in my life. Like when I lived in Sweden, I was visiting my, my wife's uncle. And I, I was cooking for her a, a chicken dinner on a in a in a pot, and I turned the pot off, and then we left, and went to his house, and then on the way back, I said, "Oh shit, I think I turned it on high." And I got back to the house, and Car and I ran up the stairs, and the 
pot had completely melted. The, oh. the uh, was glowing red. And right in the middle of this glowing red element was like this tiny little chicken that had shrunk from oh like a regular side to like a miniature. And so uh, I always like, when I go in the car, I always go, did I turn the oven off? And check, I run yeah. in and I check it like three times. Other wow. than that, I've got Other pretty that, normal behaviors. Okay. Wow, that's quite the story. Okay, what trait, this is a great question actually, what trait do you deplore the most in others? It's probably a tie between greed and narcissism, like just being self, super self-centered and super greedy, uh, unethical. Those are top three. I think mm -hmm. those three things. Hmm. Okay, you ready for this? You got to be honest. And what's the what trait do you deplore the most in yourself? That I'm super intelligent, good looking, and <laughs> kidding. Modest. I, no, I'm just kidding. So, what do I deplore the most? To me. I think mm, I tend to get to solutions very quickly. So I tend to jump from A to Z or Z, as you say in Canada, uh, quickly. And it doesn't always bring people along for the ride. So it can be problematic. Um, and I catch myself. Uh, I think the other thing I deplore about myself is I tend to be very fact based and not emotional enough. And I think that's what happens when you're a CEO of a company, you become very focused on facts. And I've tried and trained really hard to focus on emotional side of mm -hmm. people and um, also with my family and not to get too deeply into that. But what is really, you know, it's not always a factual argument, you know, you did it. No, I didn't do it. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. What is a person really trying to say, you know, try to mm -hmm. empathize more with the feeling side of things. To me, is this something I've been trying to work at? Hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being so open about that. That's good to know and very impressive, Scott. Okay. What is your greatest extravagance? Greatest extravagance? Uh, I would say travel. We've always traveled a lot and we, as a family, love it. I mean, we used to take the whole agency every year when we were in Amsterdam uh to places we would take the whole company to iceland we went to hot air ballooning over the alps we went to turkey we went to italy we went to where else france um wow all over the place yeah. um sweden and and then moved to new york and of course we said oh let's go on a trip and everyone was like oh uh, no we just want, we want <laughs> we better money. bonuses <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think actually we've been talking about it in the company that maybe after COVID we should all go to Iceland for a good hot steam bath. Oh, fun. So that might actually Can I come? Happen, I want to go to Iceland. That's um, awesome. Well, we'll see. We'll yeah. <laughs> have to discuss that's that. That's great. But, um, but yeah, that's, well, that's biggest, a good extravagance. That's yeah. a good one. Okay. Last question. Who's your favorite sister? <laughs> okay. That's not on there. I just put that on there to put you on the spot. You can only answer if you sisters. want to. <laughs> okay. Well, Leslie, my half sister, had her birthday <laughs> yesterday, so I wished her happy birthday. Oh, that's nice. And of you. Uh, I'm Anna, just teasing. Jolie, Tracy, you know, I know. A lot of sisters. I, I just putting you on the spot, Scott. Well, yeah. listen, we've taken up so much time together. This is probably the most that you and I have talked in quite a long time. So, thanks for agreeing to being on my podcast and sharing your knowledge and your experience with everybody. If people want to learn more about Scott Goodson and Strawberry Frog and movement marketing, what's the best way to call for you? They should call me exactly. You know well, everything. You've well, been there I, since I the know beginning. everything. Well, I do your t-shirts. You can you can tell everybody where yeah. you get your t-shirts from. Exactly. Um, and your hats. 
Okay, so what's the best way for them to find you? Or do you not want to be found? <laughs> <laughs> On some Please. island somewhere. No, I yeah. think um, they should, they should, uh, they can go to strawberryfrog.com or they can go to, I don't know. I don't use social on- media as much anymore. I don't use Facebook because yeah. I, I'm against Facebook and the way they behave. I just think it's atrocious. Yeah. Uh, so I don't use that anymore. Um, I, so your website would be the best, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say, you know, if they want to contact me, I'm on LinkedIn, of course. And, um, yeah. and then strawberryfrog.com. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah. just really quickly, I know you mentioned that you have a book coming out and we touched on it really briefly. I know you can't say much about it, but is there anything you can say about it? It withholds the answers to everyone's problems. Anything you've ever worried about, you will find solstice in this new book. Okay. By the way, it's written by myself and a colleague of mine, Chip Walker, who's actually a brilliant, yeah, brilliant mind. So it comes with two heads, which of course are better than one. Yeah. And when is it coming so out? March 23rd. March 23rd. Okay. Well, I can't yeah. wait to read it. So maybe will you come back on again when your book launches so we can talk about sure. that? Yeah. Yep. That would be great. Happy to. Okay. Or maybe Karen can do it. She, oh yeah. I would love, or maybe, maybe I'll have the two of you on. That'd be fun. Yeah. And I could fun. get, yeah. then I can get the real story. All right. She's well, the smarter one. Well, thanks again. Good to see your handsome face and give big hugs to everyone. And uh, we'll talk to you, I guess, real soon. And hopefully see you in person soon. All right. Thanks, Joey. This is fun. Bye. And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe even learned a few things that will help you with your branding. And most of all, I really hope you had some fun. This podcast is a work in progress, so please make sure to rate and review what you think and please subscribe to Branding Matters on whatever platform you listen to and please share with anyone you think would also enjoy it. And if you want to learn more about the Branding Badass, that's me, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn under, you guessed it, Branding Badass. So thanks again you guys and until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.